Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. Ho, ho, ho. I'm Louis Fertel. You can hear the bells jangling off my collar. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm thinking about right now is what my mom casually wears around Christmas time. Do you have people in your family who just wear, they look like, you know, a red, white, and green duvet cover with you know, <laughs> I do not. elves on them and stuff? My mom is always wearing like a festive vest that makes her half look like a blackjack dealer and also like, you know, your aunt. <laughs> Uh, is your mom good at blackjack? No, I don't think my family has any casino history. I used to be obsessed with casinos growing up. I thought I would grow up and love to be around that environment. I would play like Super Nintendo casino games. And then I grew up and then I went to a casino for the first time. And I watched somebody lose $800 in like a matter of seconds at a blackjack table. Oh, wait, it's horrifying. It's a very scary place to be. Yeah. I feel like there was a brief period where I was into gambling and I was like good at blackjack and like, you know, also good at um, poker. And I lost a significant amount of money. And then <laughs> I had to, I'm not going to say how much, um, but I stayed there until I earned it back. And then I left. Oh, well, at least you did. Yeah. One time I did, my friend Andrew took me to Commerce Com Casino, which is along, I believe, the 110 in LA or the whatever's on the east side, something over there. And I played poker with a table full of people where the median age had to be 96. <laughs> no doubt about it. And I made something like $79, but who feels good about that? Look at me. Yeah. It was basically the movie I Care A Lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I want to get uh, back into the um, world of like celebrity um, underground poker games, you know, like from oh, like from no. Molly's game. The what was that? Like Toby Maguire playing them, right? Uh, I love that's still one of my favorite openings of um, a movie too, and like Ocean's Eleven. Oh, definitely. Yes, I miss the glamour of casinos. I think also I'm so intimately familiar with like. For instance, Jimmy Kimmel does a week of shows in Vegas every so often, and I stayed at Planet Hollywood Casino for an entire week. When you're at a casino on a Wednesday, something has gone wrong. You need to not see that world. Like Vegas, as far as I'm concerned, should go totally to black from Tuesday to Thursday <laughs> and Monday. It's just, no, it's a weekend on that time. Some people can only see shows during the week. 
Now, okay, show culture, I accept, but the no, ca- I don't the need to see one arm bandit behavior. Yeah, on a Wednesday. There's something about still being able to like smoke in a casino that's just so, ugh, so grimy. I love it. Yeah, no, there is like a lounginess that is missing from life. You know, just the words Robert Goulet. You want to say them, you know what I mean? And yeah. Vegas has that energy. Since I'm in my like Sigfluencer era, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, didn't I? <laughs> uh, and it just means I'm chain smoking like Gary Bradshaw. So oh, that's very it. good. Um, well, this is our final episode of the year. God bless. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, we covered everything. Uh, and by that, I mean, I didn't pay much attention to the things I don't know anything about and I didn't even try. Uh, I would say that this year feels like, I don't, this year feels like it was like six different series. Like I can't even tell you what was going on in my life. Like January, February this year. Well, I think not to say the words post pandemic, I know it's still going on, but post that occurring in March 2020, I feel like my memory for what happened three months ago in particular is partic- is shorter. There's you have less of a reason to you're just moving on with the moment in a way. Is this just adulthood? I feel like I'm sounding like Garfield without Garfield. Uh, like John Arbuckle standing in his kitchen wondering where time went. <laughs> Things were easier, you know, when you were when you were younger kids. Uh, when you, you, you know, you could, uh, you could remember what happened based on who your teacher or professor was. Right. And then you like graduate or you <laughs> it's summertime and then you're back at school and it's different teachers. I do miss that about high school. But even with like television now, right. It just feels like everything bleeds into each other. Yeah. And especially exactly. the shows we watch like, like a drag race or like a real housewives. It just feels like if it's always on, it feels like it's always like, it feels like there's no season changing. Correct. It feels like every TV show is on and not on all the time. Yeah. Um, White Lotus just ended and it's almost like, well, White Lotus is about to start back up again. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. We have two weeks. (laughs) But now succession is coming back soon and, and drag race is coming back. Um, Drag Race is moving to MTV. Which, I don't know how I feel about... Viacom in general is just a giant perplexing sphinx in the sky. It's a hot no potato. What's going on over there. It's a hot yeah, potato. Okay, right. like, Drag Race is going to be on Comedy Central in two years. Yeah. <laughs> just passing around the properties. Um, no, I haven't watched MTV except for the VMAs, I think, in the past year. So The VMAs and the challenge for me. Oh, yeah, the challenge, of course. Yeah, but I, I still don't really know what ridiculousness is, and I understand that's part of the MTV core mantra, so I need to either lock into that or I'm not really an MTV fan. Yeah, there's there's like seven different versions of ridiculousness. And I just don't even like saying the word one time, let alone seven times. So, At any rate, um, this episode, um, as we've come to the end of the year, we wanted to get everyone presents, but... Since Cricket will not approve sending all of our listeners iTunes gift cards, we have mm. something just as good. We're going to do a mailbag episode. I have to say these are my favorite episodes. I like hearing what people are curious about. I, you know how uh, our friend Sam Griezmann made a comment on Twitter recently where he said, nobody on Instagram wants to hear you do Q&As about just anybody. Like, no one's curious where you come, has, has questions for you. But I think people should be forced to ask questions of other people. I think it's fun. <laughs> I think he's wrong. Yeah. 
Look at you calling one of our friends out for once now. I'm thrilled. Yes, it's freeing. Um, no, I love a Q&A, and I, I feel like uh, it's been a while since we've heard uh, what our listeners think about things. So um, let's get to a few of our favorite mailbag questions this year. Why don't you right. start us off? Okay, let's see. Uh, my name is Marvin, and I love hearing your guys' conversations this year on your all-time favorite movies, and I was wondering what makes the list of your favorite albums of all time. My top three have stayed the same since I was in high school. And I actually feel bad how often I revisit these things. Like, a part of me thinks I should be more voraciously devouring new stuff all the time, but I'm Midwestern and gothically obsessed with habit, so I have my favorites that I need to keep revisiting all the time. And my main three are, mm-hmm. uh, my favorite album is Liz Fair's Exile and Guyville, which I brought up all the time in the show. Uh, it's funny, crude, heartbreaking everything about it it's also just a a hard rock album it's a pop album it has something for everybody it's as much like i had this horrible relationship and also now i'm sitting on a plane just looking out the window having weird sort of foggy thoughts about the universe lots going on in that album my second favorite's amy man's bachelor number two not just because it's named after a game show reference uh her humor, her seriousness, they mixed together. I actually brought that up uh, in our interview with Mike Birbiglia this episode. And my third favorite is Madonna's first album, which is Lucky Star and Burning Up and Borderline. And uh, Everybody, which is her first single. And to me, that song has all the urgency, the um, sexual in-your-faceness, the bravado of anything she'd release in the future. And she's not even close to famous at that particular moment. You can just hear the ambition and the rawness. And I always love that particular moment in Madonna's career. I don't know about the most, but I love that album the most. That's her sort of like raucous chorus era. But then like the verses are just sort of her like having a conversation over the beat. Yes. Uh, particularly <laughs> at the beginning of everybody. Where it's like, I know you want it. You know? um, Naughty girl. I, that's that's a hard question to think about um my top my favorite albums i would say that velvet rope is always there in that think, list by the way it's probably crucial that these are albums from the time we started being obsessed with the idea of an album yeah you know um that i would absolutely say um usher 8701 would not have guessed. What's yeah. the definitive eight seven zero one track? I mean, you don't have to call. It's like I think maybe I, that's my favorite also song. Also, my favorite. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then I don't know. Like I'm probably giving you like um, probably giving you um, "Infinity on High" by Fallout Boy. Yes that that triad to me. If if someone put those three albums in front of me, I would guess, oh, this must be Ira's favorite albums. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that that's excluding like musicals, you know, because I feel like that's a whole other that's a whole other ball game. You know, yeah. which, you know. Uh, speaking of musicals, by the way, do you know what I think is an underrated song? Um, is it if I could tell her from Dear Evan Hansen? It just popped up recently. What yeah. a lovely song! Oh yeah, it's a very sweet song. It's a very sweet musical. Uh, sweetly sung yes. yeah sweet musical deranged movie yes but uh, <laughs> long movie too and it, it has disappeared from memory as soon as i saw it yeah I've, the craziest thing about that movie is how they handle waving through a window that that, that would flop 
immediately out of the gate, and then you had the entire movie ahead of you. It's just the worst feeling. <laughs> anyway, I think I think those are appropriate for three um, music albums for me. Uh, our next question comes from Alexis. She has a okay. two-prong question. Uh, well, she has one question and one accusation. Great. Uh, the Keep It Intro song, it starts with horns and then a high-pitched voice saying something like, who's ready for a party or hooray. I don't know what the voice is actually saying. I've been wondering for plea- for years. Please answer. By the way, uh, please answer. That is a remix of the song Hooray for Hollywood. Yeah. So, um, shrewd listeners would have known. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, Hooray for Hollywood, if you know, is from the 1937 film Hollywood um, Hotel. Um, and it was actually made by uh, our original producer, um, Corinne um, Gilliard, uh, her brother, remixed this for us. So, um, I don't even think where, I knew that. Yeah, that's where the song came from. I need to be more curious. What's the second part of her question? What's her second prong? Her accusation uh, is for me. Um, I want to ask Ira why he never brought up Evan Peters' performance in Dahmer or the series in general. Ira mentions being from Milwaukee and an Evan Peters stand. So what's T? Just wanted to know his thoughts on the show. First of all, I would like to know when I've ever presented myself as an Evan Peters stand. <laughs> I mean, he, he does a perfectly good job. Does that I like mean we're standing? I like her work. Uh, yeah. I think I think Evan Peters is attractive uh, in certain roles. Um, I don't know that I am, you know, um, proselytizing for um, Evan Peters in the streets. You know, yeah. Um, my, um, I don't have a ninety-five thesis for um, Evan Peters to uh, nail to the church door. So yes. let's get that out of the way first. Second of all, I brought this up slightly last week, uh, but I just have no interest in watching Dahmer whatsoever. I mean, I am from Milwaukee, and so I know the Dahmer story, and I feel like I find it exploitative in a weird sort of gross way. And exploitative not so much that I think that other true crime things like that we've seen before aren't exploitative. Exploitative in the sense that like, what else are we learning? You know? It's just... Yeah, I don't feel like there's much of a takeaway. I no. Have to say. Um, there's this, like, I'd rather something from, you know, I thought My Friend Dahmer was at least slightly more interesting just because it started as a graphic novel and it was at least from someone else's perspective of someone who knew Dahmer in school. You know, but unless you're, like, giving me, like, a different in to him i'm just sort of like i don't need to see a um highly stylized version of um Dahmer eating black people fair point i'll give that one to you not gonna argue that one uh next question emily asks if you had to cast someone other than kate to play lydia tar who would it be i think i want to give a historical answer for this because oh. uh because it's such a character for the ages and i think it has to be an actress who is terrifying who, uh, because then when you see them crumble, there should be a different form of terror emerging from them, like that they don't have any control at all. You know, it's like, imagine if like Trump lost all control. That would be pretty scary to see, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not that he's not scary already. But um, one of my favorite enraged actresses is Glenda Jackson, who uh, became an MP in 
uh, uh, British Parliament uh, some years after she won two Oscars. She won a Tony uh, uh, a, few years, a few years back for Three Tall Women. We actually talked to Alison Pill when she was on the show about uh, that production. Yeah, I would love to see her um, descend into the video game soundtracking or whatever occurs in Tar. <laughs> uh, I think I could have guessed that you would say Glenda Jackson, to be honest. I feel like she's got that sort of je ne sais quoi that you love in an actress. Uh, she has that kind of Judy Davis, you can see the anger in the neck thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know who I would go with to play Lydia Tarr. You know, I think that... Um, there's yeah, Kate there's, arguably did all right. Yeah. <laughs> she was fine. Uh, I think you need an actress with sort of a masculine pantsuit quality. You know, yes. like I'm thinking like um, later on. Honestly, it would have been really intriguing to see like Catherine Hepburn take on something like that. Yes. Oh, totally. You oh know? my god, because that that's be fabulous. Basically, that's basically who that bitch was. Like IRL. <laughs> like, yeah. just right, like right. walking around in her like dirty men's pants, uh, like fresh from the garden. Um, a lot of attitude. Um, that was basically her IRL. So it would have been nice to see um a Catherine Hepburn. Um, you know, like a sapphic Catherine Hepburn on screen too. That sort of was more in line with maybe who she actually was than who um, audiences got to see Catherine Hepburn be. Yeah, right. If she could drop the sort of bringing up baby fun whiz bang and just be yeah. a centered asshole. She was sort of like really, I mean, I, it's weird too, because I'm even, even thinking about her roles, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call them overtly feminine, you know, right. like, because um the actresses of that era used to be able to have this sort of like acerbic quality that was um sort of like knocked out of actresses when you got to like the ingenues, you know, I feel like mm-hmm. good ones like um Julie Roberts and like Sandra Bullock would have them in certain roles, but like even even, even like Sandra in like one of her sauciest roles, you know, like sort of like miscongeniality or something, like Julia probably had it more in certain roles, but like Man, no one really has that, like, that bringing up baby, that Adam's rib, that, you know, like, that, that even that Betty Davis, you know, when they're playing like, um, when they're playing like a woman, but also one who just seems sort of like, they have this sort of masculine quality to them. Their jokes are harder. You know, their cynicism. I would is call them door slammers. These are people who slam the door. <laughs> yes. um, and by the way, I do not hate the idea of Julia Roberts as tar. I would like to see that also. Mm. I love Julia Roberts as hard and as there's no other word for it, cunty as possible. Yeah, she talked. I mean, I brought this up last week too. Like she brought up, um, they were talking about 3000 um, and her um, actors on actors with Patricia Arquette um, about how like she was originally cast in it when it was originally supposed to be a much darker film. And she was like, mm-hmm. I was supposed to play this. And Patricia's like, I would love to see you in that version of it. I'm like, I'd love to see you in something like that too. Like Julie, right. I think she's like, I don't think she's fully tapped into um, everything that she can do as an actress. No, speaking of her and Catherine Hepburn, I would love to see like the Julia Roberts long day's journey in tonight. I want to see it get fucking bleak. I want to see her handle like a slow, deep monologue. You know who else? Oh, Michelle Pfeiffer. 
Oh, I mean, I went through eight different Michelles. Yeah, sorry. So, uh, <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer. Would yeah, she she's really, ready for that. When she yeah. really tapped into, like, door slamming, she is yeah. She is fantastic. I, I think uh, one of the definitive gay moments of my, like, tweendom is just seeing the commercial for What Lies Beneath and the way she says, your wife. <laughs> just, the dream enunciation right there. Uh, I've, talk, I've talked on this show before about how revisiting that film um, did not um, did not get the desired result that I wanted. I know. Um, I feel the same way. I revisited it in the past few years. Yeah. It's unfortunately not great. Um, but uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Age of Innocence. All right. Yes, lovely performance. Lucy asks, what is your dream pairing, living or dead, for the variety Actors on Actors series? Also, why is Taylor Swift doing a Directors on Directors with Martin McDonough? What are they going to talk about? Do you think she'll submit all too well for consideration at the Oscars? Can I tell you something? I would be more like hardlined and bastardly about the fact that she, I guess, wants an Oscar. But I'm sorry, guys. When Kobe won for Dear Basketball... They just threw all the Oscars out the window. I'm sorry. May he rest. It's the worst fucking Oscar win of all time. So, uh, you've have you seen Dear Basketball? It's very bad. It's like a colored pencil drawing and him reading. I want to be clear that that's all it is. Has an Oscar. I would give the paperclip from Microsoft Word an Oscar before that. Okay. (laughs) Also, but so I work at Jimmy Kimmel Live, and across the street at the Hollywood and the Highland Mall complex where the Oscars are, there's a giant mural of Kobe Bryant holding an Oscar. Imagine every day at work, I You're go taunted. in, clock in, I, I, I clock in, I'm sitting there, I'm doing my little work, I turn around, and I'm haunted by my least favorite Oscars. Work. That's my life. That's where I live. That's your villain origin. Yes, right. Me mad at the concept of basketball and the legacy of Kobe Bryant. Uh, here's what I want to say. Sometimes actors on actors produces dividends of like, you know, like, oh, these really iconic actors are talking to each other about their craft. But for the most part, you kind of just want to be entertained. And I'm sorry, nothing sounds yeah, more entertaining to me than Taylor Swift and Martin McDonough talking. <laughs> like, that I is think just she like, asks things like, <laughs> by the way, it's out, by the way, the interview, isn't it? And because she asks him, like, what does the finger symbolism in your movie means? She's so, I'm sorry, her intellect level regarding these things is giving high school great books if you great books discussions it's very well because she's also talking about um when she's talking about crafting a product she's like uh you know i'm crafting different um different colors um you know like what's going to go into it like making it a different era and i'm like okay yeah the colors you know i mean <laughs> uh almodovar over here you know, yeah, like, like, right. but for someone thinking of colors, by the way, like, except for Lover and literally naming an album Red, her videos are usually sort of like not bright and poppy. I guess the You Need to Calm Down video is bright and colorful, but that's sort of like, you know, giving like MILF money video. You know, it's not really giving ain't, like. First of all, ain't nothing wrong with that. Ain't nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Listen, we stand Fergie in this house, okay? This is a, yes, a pro-Fergie podcast. Um, sit and Fergie fear, and Martin McDonough yeah. down, okay? Yeah, there we go. Okay? There we go. I feel like they would both have a lot of things about whether or not a little party could kill somebody. That's right. That's right. I, I do want to say about Taylor Swift, though. She said the All Too Well video was partly inspired by uh, Marriage Story and Kramer versus Kramer. Yes, those are movies with arguments in them. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. 
for the insight moving on. Um, my really movie was inspired. Figure to me. My, my movie was inspired by the seminal soccer classic, uh, The Big Green. Oh, you don't have to tell me about Olivia Dabo. Yeah. Wonder Years alumna. Uh, and of course uh, she's going to submit all too well for consideration of the odds. Like, come on. She's, she, she also has, like, um, I believe she has um, de- designs on, like, directing herself. You know, like, sort of, like, directing films, which, you know, has to be better than her acting. <laughs> I actually thought she was okay in Amsterdam. Getting which, run over by a car? For th- yes, I did... <laughs> Of course, cheer and take off my clothes. I was thrilled. But. Uh, we kind of missed out by um, Cads being such a flop that she didn't really lean into her um, like McCavity era. Yeah. <laughs> and it should have been an era. It, it really been. feels like this blip, really successful PR move on her part to move on from that. I don't think I brought this up, but um, I was at a club... And I believe it was like in Europe, maybe it was like London or something, but like it was a gay club uh, and like they were playing a remix to something. And I was like, what is this song? And then I realized it was Taylor Swift singing the cavity. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That exists. You can buy that. <laughs> so shout out to her. When we're back, more mailbag. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. 
Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the Black Experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. We're back with more Mailbag. Anyway, lastly, Lucy's first question, your dream actors-on-actors pairing, living or dead. Mm, okay, my answer is, uh, I think the deal is, you, as you said, you want it to be entertaining and two people who are effort, effortlessly quotable in addition to having wild careers, it would be Betty Davis and uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Mm, I like that. I like that. Because they would respect each other. Also, like because Elizabeth Taylor, when her career started, I don't know that you really thought she would be like the, one of the defining prestige actors. And I would like to see Betty Davis size her, size her up a little bit. You're like, I saw you in Father of the Bride and didn't care for it much. But then, you know, when you got to the, the Virginia Woolf era, then I started to see you. Um, I have two. One's a joke. Um, okay. <laughs> Angelina Jolie and Jennifer Aniston. I mean, oh, I <laughs> took me a second to piece together, but it yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. Um, the, but my real one, um, and this is um, Lewis Bate, but Anthony Perkins. Okay. And Rock Hudson. Oh, my God. We would learn so much. Or it would stay <laughs> closeted entirely. I have no idea. We'd either learn a lot if, if, we're, if we're in this imaginary universe where, like, they're both dead people who are back and like doing an actors on actors now, like knowing what we know about them now. I feel like we learn a lot or we get a really sort of like queer coded tense um, interview where they're not talking about anything, but they're talking about everything at once. Right. Yes. Uh, that I do love. Also, I mean, I want to say about Anthony Perkins, you know, I think when we think about closeted actors of a certain era, we, we maybe think, oh, their career was so important to them. And then being gay was this thing they shuffled off to the side and didn't think about or ignored or whatever. This is a man who wrote a murder mystery with Stephen Sondheim. So, I mean, some real active faggotry. <laughs> I feel like at some point it was going to pop out. I mean, um, we, the one thing that we ignore is just the fact that 
tablet gossip has gotten so much now that like you have paparazzi following people and you can dig up things on everybody um the real um i mean the real truth is that like most of those actors of that time were like living their lives freely as gay people um those like the studios and like the tabloid writers were just sort of like paid off or like they were protected in the media in a way that it became impossible to do later Right. Also, like Tony Perkins would go on a set up date with a woman. And then if if they took two pictures of that, that counted as, oh, we now believe you're heterosexual for 10 years. Yes. Meanwhile, he's on a date with where's that famous picture of him? Tab Hunter. Yes. Him and Tab like sitting next to each other and they're women on the opposite sides. It's like we know what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, it it really could only be one thing. guys. (laughs) Uh, so Meredith sent a few questions ambitiously. The first one, <laughs> what are the solo artists or bands that aren't well-known, but you're loving right now? You know what? I don't really have an answer in terms of obscure people you haven't heard of. Yesterday at work, someone told me about the song Midnight Blue by Melissa Manchester that I shockingly did not know. And, you know, Melissa Manchester, sort of a like quintessential 70s balladeer vocalist. Uh, don't Cry Out Loud, it's her best uh, big song but i feel like we've sort of forgotten that name midnight blue is an amazing song go ahead and listen to that yeah um i would say you know i'm always talking about tennis uh one of my favorite bands oh right. uh, yes yes uh i adore them um patrick and Alana. um but i, I mean i'm also listening to liam bensby um i'm bringing him up mostly because um he's sort of like a pop rock um singer from brooklyn and um his album appeared on a lot of uh, songs of his appeared on a lot of my friends like spotify raps like people were sort of like in the know of him with his debut album and sort of like if you're not listening to him then um you know then you're not getting the whole story (laughs) (laughs) um Maybe lastly, two openers, um, two people who opened, I believe, for um, Charlie XCX, or one of them was an opener, and someone's opening for somebody else later. But um, I'm really into um, Baby Tate, a rapper. Um, She's fantastic. And Magdalena Bay. Um, All right. All right. Magdalena Bay is is great. And I was thinking about them because a song of theirs plays in Wednesday. Uh, and it reminded me of one of my um, ticks about um, teen shows on TV. You notice that it, the teen shows on TV, whenever they have a dance scene, they always play like indie pop music or some like new obscure band. And I'm like, yeah. you are definitely never hearing that music at a high school dance. It is yeah, always 80s obviously. and 2000s rap. Yes, right, right, right. Um, what's an independent film that you think people should be paying attention to that came out recently or is coming out soon? I just saw this documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is mm. about um, uh, the photographer Nan Golden and how she became this person who stood up against the Sackler family, who, as you probably know, like they have a wing in every museum there is, and they are the reason OxyContin is in the world. Like They basically fed it to the universe and have put us in the you know drug crisis that we are still roiling in nan golden uh established herself as a photographer through like 80s uh, 70s 80s 90s new york uh very active aids activist um 
And it really weaves her story in with how she became the person fighting the Sackler family. In a way, the structure of the movie is a little bit five-paragraph essay for me, but she's great, very quotable. It's a, it's a three-star movie, and I think it'll probably take the documentary Oscar this year. Okay. Uh, I've actually heard of that film, but I hadn't gotten the chance to see it yet, so I'm very excited. Um to actually see it. Um, I think I've talked about this already, but I just finally recently watched Drive My Car, which, you know, is independent. Oh, so but, fucking good. Yeah. So fuck- and by the way, I think people treated it like, oh, this is some inaccessible thing that no one wants to watch because it's too long. The, the That's all I heard. An actress in that movie should have fucking won. Yeah. They were amazing. That's all yeah. I fucking heard for like a year was just sort of like, oh, you're going to sit down and watch this three-hour movie. And let me tell you something. I, first of all, I love a, I, I love I love a three hour movie if it's engrossing, you know. Yeah. Like um, th- I sat down with this film and it is so beautiful. Uh, I mean, it's um, it's based on like a Murakami short story, but it's just like it's everything about this is what you really sort of want in a film. Like it feels like it tells a complete story, but it's cinematic. Is doing things that you haven't seen on screen before. The yes, the actors in it are all fucking amazing. And also, I've, we talked about Chekhov um, in this episode. Um, there's there's scenes, you know, where like the main character is like doing Uncle Banya, and it's sort of like it's reminding. It was actually reminding me that like I don't um, pay as much attention to Chekhov as I should, as someone who loves theater. But it's um, just how much he got the human condition too. And how much that Uncle Vanya like still sort of like resonates today. Um, Drive my car is just fantastic. Um, oh yeah, I mean, I mean, just it's very straight. And also, not not a thing about that movie is a cliche. You come into the movie, sort. I don't know what you expect as you're watching the story unfold. Immediately, eight things occur that are not just bizarre, but like unexpected. And then the movie is also very sweet. The movie is also very tough. Lots going on. Anyway, great, There's great um recommendation. Yeah, I mean, it, it truly takes the story, too, of someone who discovers, like, that their, their lover is, like, having an affair and turns it on its head. It turns it on its head in the sense that it makes it very human instead of, like, yes. going for, like, the melodrama. Um, so if you haven't seen that, sit down and watch it um, in, like, a space Excellent. where you're not on your phone. Yes, and I can't recommend that enough. I literally just watched the movie She Said – uh, on TV recently, because uh, you can buy it for nineteen dollars, and occasionally I'll just throw it in. Um, no, go to a theater, block everything out. It, it's sort of like I think people when they exercise should also not have their phone nearby. And I know a big part of exercising is you're listening to music, but it's a great time to not be thinking about any anything else. And I think you get more effective results that way too. Mm-hmm. Other question: uh, What is your biggest keep it about social media? Mine right now, and this has been going on for a couple years, and I blame Bo and Yang. Who <laughs> Bowen Yang? It's kind of her fault. Lip synced, yes. Lip synced the Aaron Brockovich main monologue in which Julia Roberts reads somebody to filth for comic effect, and then posted it online, and we loved it because it's a really verbose monologue. It's hard to get all the words right, and he got all the micro facial expressions of Julia right too. So it's this effective comedy video. Homosexuality, unfortunately, figured 
what if we just lip synced really easy things that were five seconds a piece and then also called that comedy? And now that's what TikTok is. <laughs> Guys, we are smarter than this. These are stupid choices. If you're like a muscle bound, you know, influencer type and you're thinking, should I lip sync something from the White Lotus right now? Girlfriend, I'm telling you it's a no. I'm telling you no. Please don't do it. There won't be any laughing. And here's the thing, which is which is not to say that our um, friend Bowen Gang is not debonair and sexy. Yes. But here's a tip. If you're doing a lip sync um, and, you're, and you're hot and you have a six pack and your shirt's off during the lip sync, people aren't coming for that lip sync, baby. And you know it, and we know it, yeah. <laughs> and it's and like like give give it up, right? That's I think a huge part of the problem here is like the idea that oh here I am sincerely presenting comedy. The fuck you are, the fuck you are. <laughs> Somebody named Colton, shut up. Yeah. Um, my biggest keeping about social media is right now people being angry about the new Instagram feature. Which I love. Oh, right. It's like you can add statuses now. It feels so aim and throwback. And I'm it. like, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. God, an aim away message. Just the, the sheer Hall of Fame passive aggression. Just like um, ha- having a normal conversation with somebody and then leaving and putting up dour song lyrics. Love it. Yeah. Like, what's the message we're sending? You know, it's very confusing. It's like, oh, I, uh, I want this boy at school to know that I'm into him. Um, let me put up this like vaguely romantic lyric for everyone to see, but yes. it does, but it's but I'm not necessarily saying anything. But you know, I'm sending you a message. Um, always fun when two you would write like be right back, like brother needs the computer or something. So bring that back. I miss hideous colors of fonts <laughs> on hideous backdrops. I miss like a hideous neon green italicized away message on a pink backdrop just you know that like vomit inducing watermelon motif that we thought was acceptable throughout the 2000s yeah also there's just something about the skill that we all had of um non-capital letter capital non-capital letter writing words like that we were all the fucking riddler yeah (laughs) uh let's see here what are your favorite music, TV, or film podcast suggestions? I think we've basically covered that here. I don't listen to podcasts. My life is mostly devoted to music I already have and also Sirius XM Radio. Because as you know, for some reason, me and all of my brothers, we are all Gen X. And yet I am not Gen X. I was born in 1986. But all of my brothers and I have a weird kind of we miss the radio. Like we miss owning music. Like everybody in my family is obsessed with having CDs. I can't explain it. I, I don't know what's up with my family and I never will. Hmm. Um, my favorite podcasts are um, whatever podcast I'm, I'm guesting on. Oh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite. Normally you don't say the quiet part out loud, right? Yeah. Uh, I also weirdly don't listen to podcasts. I listen to, I listen to it daily every now and again, um, our nemesis. Um, and I will listen <laughs> to, um, I listen, I listen, I listen to pod save the world sometimes too, when like something is really going on in the world. And I'm like, I don't even know where that country is. Uh, I'll right. do that. And I'll listen. I will listen to like a slow burn or like a, if you give me a short, almost documentary podcast where someone's like, this is four episodes, 
that I will do about something pop culture or something. I'll, I'll do that. But otherwise, like weekly or day to day, um, my brain has too much going on in it already. That's how I feel. Also, if I'm listening to a conversation, I better be in the conversation. Right. Now I'm the narcissist. See? Plus, um, if we're listening uh, to combos constantly, then we're not going to have time to watch and consume the other stuff that you want us to talk about on Keep It. Right. Time is money. Yeah. I will say I do love uh, – it's been a minute since I've listened to it, but I love – well, actually, I love it's been a minute too. But I love uh, Who Weekly, Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber. I okay, mean, yes. those people provide a service. I listen um, to Who Weekly. Here, here uh, are names. Yeah, that's here fun. are names you should know and also shouldn't know. But here they are. Yeah, that's um, th- that's and it actually taps into like I'm I'm ashamed that I know so many of the celebrities that they talk about on Who Weekly. But I mean, that's why I listen to it because it's very much that fun um, dissection of Stan culture. So I like I right. like Who Weekly as well too. The way we feel about Douglas Sirk and Meryl Streep, they feel about Kaya Gerber. So there you go. Addison have. Ray. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Insane names that we just say sometimes. Okay, one last thing. This is from Amelia. Hot take. Nick Cage will win an Oscar in the next ten years. He only has two nominations. And it does feel like there's this bubbling under Tom Cruise-like fandom for him in that he's the only one that does the thing he does. And we do appreciate it. It's not like we don't think he's less than a genius. But you're right. It does feel like a, it's going to – it's a mix of the right project for the right guy. And he's so specific and people love him. I I, I don't know about 10 years, but – somewhere in that vicinity he'll be nominated again anyway is he interested in that anymore though i mean i feel like we're so far from adaptation right um i mean people did love that movie i actually hated the unbearable weight of massive talent i actually hated that movie but he was so good in pig he has a nominee he he won an oscar though yes for leaving las Las vegas this person thinks she'll so why does he need another one (laughs) amelia have many amelia (laughs) Let me tell you something. He's has enough. He has enough. Okay? He's a Coppola. That's true. He's wow. a Coppola. Wow. He has an Oscar. Like, I'm sh- like there's, 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 there's probably a wine named after him, too. I don't know. Right. There's, there's, there's so also, many Coppola wines that I've, like, never, like, they'll see a new one, and I'm like, oh, you have one, too? Also, he, at some point, has owned every weird thing in the universe. He owns, like, weird haunted new orleans estates and he had like some gigantic python he owned at some time he one of the, he's one of these crazy like mc hammer type people who needed to possess every single fancy thing that we had uh, at one point he's also the star of the greatest rom-com of all time moonstruck so he does have enough yeah stop giving him things stop giving these stop giving stop giving these coppola's things <laughs> <laughs> and we keep getting more of them, by the way. There's, they keep leaking out of the woodwork, out of the vineyard. Uh, I, w- I, want, I want the definitive Coppola family documentary. Yeah, it's time. Oh, and guess who's going to make it? The person who can't stop talking about the Coppolas, Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When we're back, we are joined by comedian Mike Berbiglia to discuss his new Broadway show, The Old Man and the Pool. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? 
Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. My name is Sarah, and I got involved with Vote Save America way back in 2018 when it first launched. My name is Nancy, and I first got involved in VSA in 2018. Ever since then, Vote Save America has been the best part of my political engagement. Anytime the election anxiety starts to feel overwhelming, I remind myself that my anxiety relief program donation is fueling grassroots organizations around the country. And VSA has the Political Action Finder, a handy website I've used to find phone banks, knowing that I'm helping to win critical house seats. In fact, I already signed up to volunteer with the Political Action Finder on the VSA website and helped replace disgraced former volleyball star George Santos. So if you're someone who doesn't want to wake up on November 6th this year and regret not doing more, and I'm pretty sure you are, go to votesaveamerica.com to get started and I'll see you at a phone bank soon. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. So our guest today is a fantastic writer, actor, comedian, um, probably the most famous somnambulist we've had on the show. Uh, You know him from his stand-up specials, Orange is the New Black, his movie Don't Think Twice, and now you can catch him from now until January 15th on Broadway with his show, The Old Man and the Pool. Welcome to the show, Mike Berbiglia. Thanks, Ira. That the f- most famous somnambulist is that's got to be the, the that's like a subtweet right there. <laughs> how, was, many, how many famous sleepwalkers are there? Come I was on. just going to ask. I don't, I've not been to that Wikipedia and now I'd be curious. <laughs> I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm in the DSM uh, as the example for my sleepwalking disorder, uh, REM, REM sleep behavior disorder. That's a Which, level of recognition most celebrities will never get. I no, actually no. think that's somewhat flattering. <laughs> no, who's in the DSM? I mean, come on. What comedians <laughs> What comedians and playwrights are in the DSM? Yeah, it's like you and Freud. Good for you. A quick search says that other celebrities with um, who have experienced sleepwalking are Jennifer Aniston. Oh, right? there you go. Um. But no, the other people on here have like sleep apnea or narcolepsy. So I think we, you got you got Jennifer Aniston. That's you know, huge. So and we should discuss at some point because uh, she did start following me on Instagram when I hosted Jimmy Kimmel Live because she watches every night when I filled in when he had COVID. That's that <laughs> that's the inner circle of Hollywood right there. When you, when you <laughs> guest host Jimmy Kimmel Live, Jennifer Aniston follows you on Instagram. <laughs> That's the I would tea love, right there. 
I would love then like, you know, like a, a Frost Nixon between you both about oh, yeah. sleepwalking. Cause I'm very intrigued as to like what sleepwalking was like for Jennifer Aniston. And was it like during the height of friends? <laughs> by the way, by the way, I'm all over this because, because that, that's what I would, cause I, I was like, oh, that would be fun for Jennifer Aniston to come on my podcast, working it out. But what would we talk about? And now, I know what we're talking about. <laughs> we're just gonna tell sleep. We're just gonna tell sleepwalking stories for an hour. I think that's a phenomenal idea. Now you're joking now, and you've famously talked about sleepwalking before. But something to me that is so interesting about you is your act keeps evolving, and the ways in which we get to know you expand and expand. Do you find yourself surprised at some of the things you are talking about nowadays? Could you have anticipated? some of the topics you cover years ago as a comic? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, that is that is one of the things that, like, as a writer, people always go, you know, are you always writing everything down? When you, someone is dying in, in your family, are you thinking, oh, this will be a good piece of writing, like, that kind of thing? I'll take it a step further. Not only am I always thinking about writing, but then the other end of that is when I'm on stage talking about these things, I sometimes have the thought... I can't believe I'm saying this to a group of a thousand people. Like, it's so weird. Um, and so uh, that's I mean, with this show, it's particularly that because it's sort of like it's sort of mining into the my my subconscious of like my deepest fears of death and disease and, and people out close to me dying and all this stuff. And sometimes I am on stage thinking like there's no going back. I mean, we're here. And uh, but but it's also like. In that sense, it's also satisfying because I have a lot of people say say to me, like, this was a conversation starter with me and my son or me and my mom or whatever about things that are deep. Because because I think, like, one of the things I'm sure drives you both nuts the way it drives me nuts is, like, I'm really short-fused for, like, small talk. Like, I'm just, like, I, I, like, I get, like, a minute into a conversation, and if it doesn't go somewhere that's substantive, I'm kind of, like... What are we doing? Yeah. So if I can encourage that in any way, I, I want to be a part of it. Um, one thing I really enjoyed about the show um, was just, first of all, I, I want to say, admit that I was one of the people um, who was part of the um, brought in um, 10 minutes into the show. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, late person. Yeah, yeah. Yes, because the show starts at 730 and 730. Um, start shows in Broadway are sort of like an anomaly. And um, I thought it was at eight. Um, But I come in with like 40 people, I feel like. Uh, But I love that you made that a part of the show, too. I I always talk about late people. I always talk about if there's any, uh, someone has an absurd laugh, if someone has a a, a particularly strange reaction to some story, some kind of specialized uh specialty cringe sound they make when i talk about surgeries or something like that um i always say because i think of theater as like it's like we're all here it's a we're all here experience and i feel like if you don't acknowledge the things that are happening that are anomalous then like a little bit breaks the we're all here of it so so i like to i like to talk about when people come in late and also you know what's funny about that it's and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. If maybe people skip ahead thirty seconds if they're coming to see the show. So it's like half the time people are late, and I'll just do like a recap of what they've missed. But actually, 
it's good for people who are kind of half paying attention. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is what happened so far. <laughs> I didn't miss anything. They get to kind of yeah, feel smart. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm intrigued, too, by that sense of, you know, sort of we're all here and um, engaging with people who have um, different things that might affect the show. Because does that make the show sort of feel more alive for you and like you're doing stand-up almost every night instead of I'm memorizing um, a one-man show and it's going to be the same thing every night, you know, and I feel like that would be a little bit monotonous for someone like you as opposed to Audra McDonald doing her, you know, right. one-woman thing all night for Ohio State Murders. Right. No, I think like it's it's the, the what's different every night and it's true probably for Audra too i would i would be curious to ask her about it is the audience is different always and the mm-hmm. audience when you do solo when you do solo work the audience is your scene partner um and you actually do not know how they're going to react and i think that it does it 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 does impact sort of where what the evening feels like i've had people come my friend victoria came last night for the third time and she had like thoughts and notes on like specific moments being different than they were the other two times she saw it and all the kind of stuff. And honestly, like, I love that. Like I, I love, uh, yeah, I think some people hate, uh, feedback, like artists hate feedback. Um, some people do, some people love it. I love it because I feel like it's, um, it's, uh, <laughs> to 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 keep it keep in uh the theme of the show keep it or keep it or uh throw it away uh <laughs> you, you you can choose you can when you get feedback you can choose whether or not that's something that is helpful for your vision or it's not and so i i sort of love that and i yeah so I, and i do feel like every every night is different um another thing i love about you is i read a q a where you specifically said a thing you cherish about other comics is that you don't relate to them. They're coming from a place <laughs> yes. that isn't like you. And yeah. this that seems in a way elementary, but it, I, to me, that's so important. Like in a way, I feel like if somebody asks me what like my favorite album is, I have to say, and here are the reasons I related to the fucking thing. And it's just not true. Like I, I wish more people just liked something because it wasn't, it didn't remind them the, of themselves at all. And I was wondering what comics in general feel like that to you. Like the two that I always say, uh, because it's because I'm I'm in awe of their craft and and their writing is Maria Bamford and uh, Doug Stanhope. And whenever I say Maria Bamford, I think people get where that comes from. Doug Stanhope, I think a lot of times people go like, really? Like Doug Stanhope, that's the person who you're drawn to because he's he's such a provocateur, like to the point where like one time um, Jenny and I saw him live and um we he brings the audience to like less than zero in terms of like almost hating the show and it's very andy kaufman-esque like it's and then and then he brings it up you know and uh to an 11 and i love watching that and he does it it's all i mean i think i haven't talked to him about it at length but i think it's all by design and it's and you know i mean other than that it's like all I would say about, about stand-up comedy at this moment is, is that I see a lot of people criticizing stand-up comedians uh, for things that they don't agree with that the stand-up comedians say. And I think sometimes we have to zoom out and say that 
actually, that's not what the art form is for. Like the art form was never intended to be where we get our ideologies from. Like I'm never, I never, I never watch a stand-up comedian and go, ah, that's what I've been missing in my life. You know, I just, I, I like it when people have. Can I curse? Yes. Yeah. Yes. People have fucking wild takes, and you're like. Oh, wow. That person like went there on that. And <laughs> and I I don't know. I love that. But but I but apparently the way that culture is right now and with uh you know, of course the exponentialization of everyone's opinion that the noise of people's opinions about stand-up comedy sometimes makes it seem like that that comedian is making like an ideological point, but I I'm not so sure they are. Mm-hmm. I, I do feel like part of the appeal of comedy secretly for certain people, though, is a sense of authority, you know, even like impermeability to a certain extent, like, oh, you're you're invulnerable and we trust this person on on stage. But there's something, you know, maybe a little egomaniacal about that. Do you do you find yourself analyzing the intentions of comedians as as you're watching them? I, I really don't. Yeah. Like, I think in the, another example from, you know, uh, is, of course, like you know, like Stern, like Howard Stern is not a comedian, mm-hmm. but he's a radio personality. And I don't actually take what he says at face value. I don't know if other people do. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But I I, I sort of listen to it as like, like, oh, you know, like, oh, that's a that's a swing. You know what I mean? That's a big swing. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I don't know. That's how I see it. I think there's this sort of, you know, nebulous idea about whether or not someone is, I guess, doing, for lack of better terms, you know, like a bit um, or like really committing to it, you know, because there's also this idea that, you know, I grew up watching, um, you know, like Kings of Comedy, you know, like black stand up and stuff like that and seeing like, seeing like as much as... um, they like would really commit to like this sort of personality on stage, you know, like Bernie Mac, for instance, you know, when he's doing stand up, completely different Bernie Mac. When you see interviews with him, you know, when you watch like the Bernie Mac show, you know, it's like there's, there's, there's multitudes to him. And if you just sort of sit there and take it all as at face value, this is who Bernie Mac is when he's doing a stand up, then you wouldn't really know, who he is. And I feel like at a, maybe at a younger age, I got this idea that just sort of like, he's just be, he's just performing for, you know, his people. He's performing for the cookout, whatever. And like after that, you know, you move on and you become who you actually are. Yeah. I mean, Bernie Mac, I think is a great example. He's like one of the great standups of all time. And, and it's like, I want to say like, is it a stammer or stutter character that he does consistently? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like if if you were going to analyze that and say, does he have hatred for people who have a stutter or stammer? Like, like I don't think so. I mean, I don't know, but my inclination would be no. Mm-hmm. My inclination, based on everything I've heard about Bernie Mac personally, I don't know him personally, uh, but from Larry Wilmore and other folks who have, is like that he was a really sweet person and really well-intended. And I don't know. It's, it's tricky. I mean, it's tricky stuff because it's also like, it's also like the people who are the lightning rods for um, criticism in stand-up comedy right now also like 
they seem they seem to kind of relish it too. Mm-hmm. I, I always say whenever people are provoked by stand up, it's like, I think you're doing what the person that you can't stand wants you to do, which is be provoked. Um, something else you said uh, about where your material comes from is that you journal often and I, I i forget what percentage of your journaling you said turned into productive um uh material for you but it was something like three percent and my question is <laughs> yeah <laughs> not is exact that, science but sure yeah <laughs> is that like a frustrating procedure to be like i'm sitting down to write and you know almost certainly this isn't going anywhere at least professionally no, I think it's uh, honestly that part of the process is therapeutic because it's it's and I always say this to people. If you can't afford therapy, get a journal, because I think that uh, a journaling I say in the show, I go in the old man in the pool. I say, you know, I find that if you write in a journal, the things that you're sad about or angriest about, you, you can start to see your own life as a story. And when you see your own life as a story, sometimes you can zoom out and encourage the main character to make better decisions. And I find that journaling for me is precisely that. It's this experience of of putting things down on, on the page and you start to go, oh, my God, like, I can't believe I was upset about that three weeks ago. Like when I read back, even as even as recent as a week ago, I go, oh, wow, I'm really not seeing the forest for the trees here. And, and it's real for me, it's really helpful. Does that mean you read back your journals, too? I do. All the time, yeah. <laughs> I do quite a bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, revisiting the person you were like three weeks ago yeah, and being exactly. angry at them. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing I find interesting about that too is just this sort of idea that, you know, as writers and creators, you're constantly reliving things that have happened in your life, yes, but, you know, particularly for stand-ups or someone doing a one-man show like this, you're reliving it constantly even more so than you know someone is reliving a moment that they write into a film or something you know and um how do you decide uh how to craft just a moment in time from your life that to make it sort of relevant to what you're going through now you know i feel like you do this very well in this show alex edelman did this really well um in his show um you know, it, it just seems to be this sort of special skill to find this moment, like something you might have journaled about, and then be like, okay, I'm going to relate these specific moments to, I guess, the theme of the show. I think a lot, like as a storyteller, I think what you're trying to ultimately do is if you have um, the goal of all of my shows, Sleepwalk With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, Thank God for Jokes, The New One, and Old Man in the Pool, is to take a series of stories and turn them into a single story. So that you ultimately don't feel the seams too much between the stories. And and I find that th- – and this is true like even if you look at like – if I look at my favorite movies, you know, and, and my favorite plays is you want that – you want the causality of the story to um, have inertia into the next story and the inertia of that to go into the next story. So that when you arrive at the end, um, you feel like – you've really been on a journey with the person on stage and with the audience. And so um, a lot of the, you know, and I'm touring the country. I mean, I've been touring. So it's crazy. I've been touring as a comedian for 20 years. And a lot of what I do when I'm touring is I'm putting essentially drafts of these solo plays on stage. And I'm seeing like, 
is that inertia that I'm talking about? Does it exist? Or am I getting too in the weeds of a tangent or like a bit uh, in the minutia? I'm so caught up in the minutia of something that I'm losing sight of the fact that like, no, no, this is a story about how a few years ago I went to the doctor, I failed the pulmonary test, then I realized I had diabetes, then it flashed me back to when I had cancer, then it flashed me back you know, to, you know, trying to get fit when I was, you play sports when I was in high school, and then it flashed me back to this. And now I've arrived at this moment where I'm trying to get healthier. I'm trying to, and if, and if, and if, if any of my stories or bits or jokes don't serve the purpose of going there, I try to just sort of get rid of them. And so a lot of times what will happen is like, I'll tour with something and people go like, (laughs) <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll see the final version. They'll go, what happened to that joke? I love that joke about peanut M&Ms in the mini bar <laughs> at, at hotels. You know, I used to do this joke like early in the process. I had this joke I actually love, which is like, if you suck on a peanut M&M long enough, it's just a, a peanut. And if you suck on that peanut long enough, you can taste pure shame. And at a certain point, the shame starts to turn into pride. And you think, well, I've been meaning to eat more nuts. Nuts are pretty healthy. They got protein. And, 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 uh, and yeah, and I, I, people used to really like, like quote that to me a lot. Like, oh, yeah, I love peanut M&M's. <laughs> and, uh, and then ultimately it was like this thing where it was like the, 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 to, to speak to Ira's point about like what, what stays in the show and what doesn't. The peanut M&M's bit used to be in the part of the show where I talk about how I get the news that I have type 2 diabetes at a hotel room. And mm. it was one of these things where I talk about how I'm ordering a pizza and I'm eating peanut M&M's, blah, blah, blah. And in long term, I was like, well, eating the pizza is actually bad enough for the story beat <laughs> of being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in a hotel room. And so then it just goes away. And then honestly, like... The peanut M&M's joke might end up in my next show. I don't know. It's all, you know, you can see behind me my cork board from working it out. But it's like they, it all ends up on the board somewhere. And it it's it ends up uh, somewhere. Uh, you basically mentioned this in some form before, but you uh, take in other comics a lot. You're, you care about what other comics are doing. What kind of pop culture do you... Uh, watch go back to that we would that would surprise us that maybe doesn't relate to what you do necessarily on stage. I mean, I love SNL. It was so funny because this weekend I was so psyched because um the I love the Please Don't Destroy fellas on uh, on SNL right now. Mm-hmm. They make those mm-hmm. Please Don't Destroy sketches. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um in the back of the scene this week this past weekend there was a Working It Out podcast like postcard. That was on the bulletin board, like through the sketch and all these people Instagram screenshotted it and sent it to me. And uh, so, yeah, I love like I love SNL. I think the reason I love SNL is it it actually harkens to this thing that um, Seth Meyers once said about SNL, which is a lot of people like criticize SNL. They go like they go like um, it's not good anymore. It's not this. It's not that. And it doesn't fulfill their expectations of what they want. But it's like what I love about it is it's on every week. And Seth Meyers says this thing where he goes like some sketches. All One thing is always true. Some sketches are good. Some sketches are bad. Some sketches are OK. And if you accept <laughs> that as a concept, the show is pretty fun. You know what I mean? Like if you don't have the expectation of like everything is going to crush, you're kind of like, yeah, this one's not for me. 
But like, you know, whatever. I really liked Weekend Update. <laughs> I was thinking about that in terms of um in the weeds of like some Twitter comment where someone talked about um asked if someone was sharing like a clip from like Scandal or something and they were like, um, oh, this seems like a really interesting episode. Um, but I quit watching after I hated this one particular episode, which is so weird to me in the age of binging, because when I think about television and particularly as a writer now, um, the entire concept of TV used to be, if you watch this one episode, maybe this one sucks, but you know, next week it's going to be a good episode of yes. TV. No, it's weird. Like, and also, it's funny you should say the thing about, like, I didn't like this episode or whatever. I actually think this goes back to the thing we're talking about stand-up comedy. You don't have to like the comedian or like the comedian's views to enjoy what they're doing as an art form. And I feel like that's true in movies and TV also. It's like, it's like I'm more interested uh, by Succession, which has, you know, a lot of people go... I don't like any of the characters on that show. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun because it's <laughs> so wild. Like, it's like, you talk about wild takes. That show is like 13 wild takes simultaneously. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no one I agree with on that show. Like, I don't think there's a voice of reason character on that show even. No, I, I was going to say that um, my my mom is particularly obsessed with likability of characters. Like she'll leave a movie and be mm. like, I didn't like anybody in that movie. And I just want to say like, even on shows that are beloved and age old, like on the Mary Tyler Moore show, maybe Mary was the only quote unquote normal person. And, Seinf- like, and you don't and need Se- nine of them on a no, show. And Seinfeld was that. Seinfeld yeah. was the, 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 the character that was the saddest quote actually was the comedian. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then... And- you remember the end of Seinfeld when you confronted the audience with the fact that everyone was sort of awful, uh, which <laughs> everyone else watching it already knew. People famously got mad at, you know, I like know. the four of them being like put to task for the awful shit they've done. Which, yeah. But we know they're awful yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, there was one other thing on that, though. Um, yeah, succession, yeah, succession has that. Oh, you know what else has that? And I love it. You're asking like what I would like, what I like that that's maybe unexpected. First of all, I just like a lot of drama. Like I like my favorite like quote unquote comedies. A lot of them are like James L. Brooks movies that aren't. Some of them not considered comedies. Broadcast news, terms of endearment. Like to me, those things like really make me laugh. Like another one is like Noah Baumbach movies. You know, Noah Baumbach is an interesting artist because a lot of his movies people perceive as just like hard dramas, you know, with some comedy in them. But the way I've heard him say in interviews, like he views all of his movies as comedies. And I totally get that. And I think James L. Brooks is the same way. I've actually I asked James L. Brooks about that once because I I saw him at something and I was I was like, you know, I always say to people like Terms of Endearment is one of my favorite comedies. And people think I'm joking, but I'm because it's a tearjerker. You know, there's cancer and death and all these things are sad, but it's actually so funny. And then like the heart, like honestly, the hardest I laugh is like rewatching like Francis Ha or like Squid and the Whale. Squid and the Whale is like my wife and I quote that movie constantly. It's a great movie. And one of a kind. Well, there's that the, the Jeff Daniels character has so many great lines where he's so unaware of himself 
and he talks about the the neighborhood that they live in being the fillet of the neighborhood or like the part of the neighborhood being the fillet of and Jen and I my wife and I quote that all the time because we just think that the fillet of the neighborhood is just such a cringy like way to describe something <laughs> no um, like the, yeah, you're at the funniest moment of like uh terms of endearment is when you know Shirley MacLaine is screaming during this incredibly tense uh climactic moment it reminds me of something uh amy mann once said she said the best serious material is truly lighthearted. you know well, like it, it gets to the heart of it when it gets funny you know i mean check off is funny right for right sure. you know a hundred percent and and by the way and 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 godot waiting for godot godot is that too it's both it's both and it's very sad very funny i actually think that when dramas go wrong is when there's no humor because to me, it doesn't feel like life. It doesn't feel like anything I've ever witnessed in the world. Which which sort of goes back to to um, my show, The Old Man in the Pool, which is, let's say, that, like, it's the idea of, like, can you take something that's fundamentally so sad? I remember going to, like, one of our best friends in the show, and they talk about going to one of my best friend's funerals when I was younger, and everyone just crying and then getting drunk and, like, all this stuff, and... And it's like trying to find the humor in that. If you can do that, it it gives the audience sort of a roadmap to where they can find humor in their own tragedies and sadness, I, I think. Yeah. I mean, famously, Barry Tyler Moore with Chuckles. And also <laughs> yes. a classic, Dawson, <laughs> Dawson's Creek, when I forget her name, but the bitch in school when she died. And then Michelle Williams has to give a eulogy for her as she starts cracking up. And she's like, you all hated her. She was a yes, bitch. Yes. And I'm like, that as a kid taught me like, yeah, you can laugh when some people do. That's nice. That's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I just want to say that the show is really fantastic. And, um, and, you know, I feel like it is a show that you can see over and over again. When I, when I was there getting my tickets to this woman, um, who recognized me she was like um oh this is my like fourth time seeing this show oh my god so um it's it's really just a fantastic um sort of representation of life and death and i was moved and the ending i'm not ruining anything for anyone but the ending is truly fantastic the last the last sort of bit at the end um was one of my favorite things that I've seen on stage in quite some time. Oh, well, thanks a lot, Ira. And, uh, you know, I will uh, tip of the cap to uh, to just Lincoln Center being just spectacular to to visit, especially this time of year. Lincoln Center is gorgeous. Holy yeah. cow. I mean, the between the fountain and the lights and you got the Nutcracker and the Met and all this, it's just like it, sometimes with New York City, you know, we forget that we live in the city that has like Lincoln center, you know, and, you know, and the museum of natural history and, you know, and 30 rock and all these places. And it's like, it's just a, it's a knockout city. It's a great city. Yeah. And it's, a, and I'm, I feel very lucky to sort of be in one of the neat places, you know, for, for five more weeks. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mike. Thanks Ira. Uh, it, it means the world that you came to the show and you made it. I really, it, it means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. The Old Man in the Pool is playing on Broadway through January 15th. So make sure you go and see it.
All right. Well, I think that's our episode. We did a good job. Yeah, we did a good job. We gave you keep it in there. Um, we gave you we gave you thoughts about Nicholas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> Mine were complicated, and so were yours. It turns out. I'm glad Amelia stuck her neck out with that weird opinion. Yeah, she's probably a Coppola. No kidding. Right. Um, so we will see you in three weeks on January 11th where we will officially be celebrating the fifth anniversary of Keep It. I actually just clutched the desk. I, just, <laughs> I, I, could, I could feel my stomach move as that uh, happened. Wow, five, we old. Five years. We, 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 we got a lot of twists and turns. We're officially syndicated. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Just like my favorite TV show, Becker. I don't know. That was the first syndicated show that came to mind. Becker was great. You know Ted can't miss. Yeah. And remember to check out full episodes of Keep It on the Uncultured YouTube channel and give us five-star reviews when you rate Keep It on your podcast platform of choice, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or whatever. Anyway, thanks again to Mike Birbiglia for joining us, and we'll see you again in three weeks. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, keep it as filmed in front of a live studio audience. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.